and Rob McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the Mystical Underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Rob McGregor. And Trish McGregor. And our tech magician, John Posey. The Mystical Underground is a place where the weird and the wonderful flourish, where ideas that are contrary to mainstream materialistic science are explored, and the mundane everyday world takes a back seat. You can go to our website, phenomena111, to find out out about our nonfiction books, including the most recent one, Phenomena, harnessing your psychic abilities, and you can visit blog.synchrosecrets.com where we make our regular posts. Uh, We were going to have our second part of the interview with uh, past life therapist uh, Carol Bowman today, but we're going to do something a little bit different. John Posey's going to be uh, coming in, and uh, we're going to be talking about some headlines. John? Yeah, we thought it'd be interesting to take a look at uh, astrology and psychic uh, headlines from mainstream media and see what you guys think about it. Uh, Our first article is from wellandgood.com, written by Jessica Estrada. Uh, We're all a little psychic. Here are four, four ways to develop that intuitive muscle. Uh, She says, regardless of your stance on psychics and their powers, maybe you have yours on speed dial or you'd never get a reading from one or you fall somewhere in the middle. You likely possess your own intuitive psychic leaning prowess. In fact, according to one pro, we all have that otherworldly sense. We just need help learning how to develop psychic abilities. Need convincing? Consider this. Have you ever turned around because you felt someone staring at you? Or has the thought of a certain person randomly popped into your mind and then you ran into that person later in the day? Or maybe you've simply gotten a bad vibe upon entering a room. All of these are examples of an intuitive psychic gift in action. According to Lynn Jackson, author of Signs, The Secret Language of the Universe, you can develop psychic abilities in four steps. The first step being open to tapping into your psychic skills. Trish, Rob? Uh, The second one is practice reading people's energy. Third, predict how places will look. And fourth, get in touch with your spirit guides. Now, while we don't disagree with any of her predictions, I mean, any of her uh, suggestions, they're kind of broad. And... Rob and I, in our books on synchronicity, spirit contact, psychic development, and paranormal phenomena, we always start with a really basic suggestion, being receptive. If you aren't open to the possibility of of experiencing a synchronicity or communicating with loved ones who passed on or developing your psychic abilities, then it's not going to happen. In our book, Sensing the Future, which is about precognition, we recommend five easy things to facilitate seeing the future, but they're also, these five things are also good for any kind of 
psychic uh, development or for <clears throat> contacting spirit guides or spirits. So the first one, follow your impulses. You, this is when you feel compelled to act uncharacteristically. Okay, keep a journal so you have a record. Set your intentions. Pay attention to signs and symbols that that surface, and believe and follow through. Rob, do you want to take yeah. the spirit? Yeah. Well, I think the very important element is just recognition that these abilities are possible. If you think that you're not psychic, that uh, you never pick up anything, well, that will probably come true. So it's awareness, uh, recognition first, and then awareness, just uh, staying aware and um, watching for signs and symbols. Uh, you can also program a, uh, a psychic event. Uh, or, a, or a synchronicity. Or you a synchronicity. create that inner climate. Right. But ask a question uh, that you want answered. Go out into the world. Maybe not these Maybe days not <laughs> going too far out into the world. But watch for the first unusual thing that happens. And you think of it as a symbol. Maybe it's uh, something you pick up on the radio or on the television that's on. Uh, and use it, uh, interpret it to answer your, your question. And sometimes some of these, these uh, signs and symbols happen through animals. So let's say you walk out to your driveway with this question in mind. And a dead bird falls out of the sky at your feet. Okay, that's kind of freaky, but it may be a sign. So take note of what kind of bird it is, of course, and bury it and do a ritual for it. Uh, and then look for the etheric meaning for that bird. And also one of the basic things is to overcome fear. Fear that uh, if you pursue such uh, means of... Uh, cognition, looking at the world through uh, intuition, that there's something wrong with that. Sometimes uh, we've been, some of us have been raised in religion where that type of uh, activity is frowned upon, seen as uh, diabolical or, or whatever. Uh, so we got to get past that. <clears throat> and also, it's important to, um, set, uh, to set an intention and to pay attention to whatever comes up, and then just let it go, though. Just no attention. So watch what, watch what comes out. Okay, our next headline uh, is from Ladders.com, uh, written by C.W. Headley. Uh, the most successful CEOs tend to have these zodiac signs. The path to success is an infamously e elusive one. With so many critical factors to account for, meta-research stands as our most attested compass. With the help of a new paper published in Business Comparison, Ladders reviews all of the similarities that separate eminent individuals from everyone else. Ladders took a look at the original list from Pilotfish Media's research on the most influential brands on social media. They then used sources such as Wikipedia, Bloomberg, Forbes, and Crunchbase to find out everything from birth dates to when they first became a CEO. They also took a look at numbers of social followers by looking at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts. 
Uh, the methodology concluded that the average successful CEO is an American male around the age of 55 who achieved the highest rank within their firm's roughly 14 years prior to receiving a position, the CEO position. Uh, they are also a Harvard alum, alumni and carry an MBA and are a Taurus. Uh, so to break it down, they looked at social awareness, the ability to cultivate an online following, which translates to boardroom leadership skills, the age of innovation, uh, that founders tended to start their professional journeys much earlier in life with a median starting age of 28, and star power, which is the name of our companion podcast here on the Mystical Underground, uh, which suggested that uh, that Tauruses uh, are ahead of the game. Uh, Taurus is a zodiac earth sign bearing the insignia of a bull with pointed tusks. The astrological symbol is said to invoke a sense of loyalty, ambition, patience, and practicality. The largest share of successful CEOs also happen to belong to the to this uh, celestial spirit animal, just ahead of Leo's a sign associated with innovation and extravagance. So uh, Taurus is eight, Leo six, Pisces five, Scorpio five, Virgo five, Aquarius four, Gemini four, Libra four, Capricorn three, Aries two, Cancer two, and Sagittarius two. So what do you make of that? Well, I have problems with this article. <laughs> First of all, I think uh, I think they use this zodiac thing as a way to attract people because your your success in life isn't determined by your sun sign. I mean, it helps. So let, let's take a look at Mark Zuckerberg, who in this uh, article comes in third. Uh, this is a list of the youngest successful CEOs. Zuckerberg comes in third behind Kylie Jenner with I'm sorry, Kylie Jenner with Kylie Cosmetics and even even Spiegel, who created Snapchat. Okay, in, in uh, Zuckerberg's chart, his Taurus son uh, falls in the ninth house, which rules, as well as other things, publishing, broadcasting, um, your worldview, your phil- your philosophy. Okay, but but the, I think the source really of Zuckerberg's genius. In his second house, which is money, finances, he has three planets, Pluto, Saturn, and the moon, all in Scorpio. Scorpio, Scorpios tend to dig really deeply for their answers. They don't give up until they have an answer. The Pluto in Scorpio gives him personal power. Saturn in Scorpio gave him the ability to create a structure. And the moon in Scorpio gave him the, the basically the instinct, the intuition to, to create his vision. Now, he also has Mars in Scorpio. Mars is your motivation, your action, your physical energy. And his is in the third house of communication. Well, what is Facebook about? It's about communication. Now, I think his he also has some other really kind of cool things in his chart that don't have anything to do with the sun. Okay, Jupiter, which is your luck and your prosperity, forms a beautiful angle to his natal Venus. Now, Venus is about the arts. It's about women. So he's, over the years, he's he's also gotten help from women. I don't know in what context, but <laughs> we're going to assume that it's, that it's uh, professional. Uh, he also has Virgo rising. 
Now, Virgo is the most detailed. Virgos are masters of details. So my sense of this chart is that here he had the vision. Then he had this stuff in Scorpio that enabled him to build the structure and to know where he was going. And then he had this Virgo rising, which gave him the grasp of details. Now, let's compare his chart to Stephen King's. Now, Stephen King isn't a CEO, but he's certainly the king of horror, and everybody knows his name. So King is, is also, a, he has a Virgo son, and it's in the third house of communication. He also has Venus in the third house of communication and Neptune. Okay, Neptune, I believe, gives him the, the imagination that he needs to write the kind of books he does. Venus gives him the artistic flow to his language. And the sun in Virgo, there's the detail. Um, he also has Cancer rising. And Mars is closely conjunct to his rising. So that gives him the energy <laughs> to pour out all these books he does. I mean, I don't even know. After all these years writing books, I'm not even sure how many books he's got now, but it's probably hundreds. Um, and King, the other interesting thing about King is he has Uranus in the 11th house in Gemini. Uranus is the planet of sudden, unexpected events, and it's also the planet that describes your particular genius. So the way I interpret this, since the 11th house is about networks, the public, um, it wasn't a surprise that he wrote this, I think it was Carrie was his first book, and he thought the manuscript was awful and threw it out, and his wife retrieved it from the trash, and he sent it in, and it sold for $2,500. But then the paperback rights to carry sold for 400000 So there you have his initial appeal to the public. So, I mean, the sun sign isn't your, isn't your soul. It's, it's not the only thing. So take heart. <laughs> if, okay, oh, now here's another important thing. On this list, they have Sagittarius listed at the end. They're saying it is the 12th most uh, on this list. It falls 12. However, <clears throat> Nostradamus, a different type of fame, and here we are, what, almost 500 years later, was a Sagittarius. Rob? Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about Nostradamus, but first I want to mention that uh, if you're skeptical about astrology, and I was when I met, first met Trish, just looking at the sun signs, uh, uh, things that are in the newspapers, uh, very general, and it's easy to dismiss. But then when you talk to somebody like Trish, who delves into the depth of astrology, into the depth of your own chart, you get a whole different picture. Uh, Trish didn't know me when we first met. She uh, she read my chart and she just read me up and down as if she'd known me all my life. It was uh, blew my mind. And so, you got stuck with me. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so I want to talk about Nostradamus. <clears throat> First of all, uh, interesting story here. While attending a Catholic school in Avignon, uh, France, he made his first prediction. Having seen two young pigs at the barnyard, a black and a white one, he said, the white pig would be killed by a wolf, and the black one served for dinner. So after the rector heard about this, found out about this prediction, he decided he was going to screw up that prediction. He ordered to have the black 
pig slaughtered and buried and to serve the white pig for dinner immediately. So the cook rushed to fulfill the order, but was told at the barnyard that the white pig had been snatched by a wolf that had entered the barn through the roof and only the black pig was left. So unsure what to do, the, the cook served the black pig uh, for dinner, hence uh, fulfilling Nostradamus's first <laughs> prediction. <clears throat> so um, Nostradamus' love of astrology and his t- talent for prophecy were encouraged by both of his grandparents, grandfathers actually, who were physicians to the king uh, and his son. Uh, and part of the king's touring group of scholars and were part of the king's touring groups of scholars <coughs> and artists. So King René had been extremely tolerant of Jews, unlike his successor, King uh, Louis XII. Nostradamus spent much of his life living with his grandfather and um, excelled at mathematics and astrology while learning Latin, Greek, and uh, Hebrew. So he studied liberal arts at uh, Avignon University and wanted to become an astrologer, but conceded that it would be wiser to study medicine. So in 1522, he began at the University of Montpellier. Uh, Three years later, he passed his exams and received his medical license. He headed off to the countryside with his medical and astrology books to practice medicine just as the plague was sweeping through Europe. So he spent the next 10 years battling the plague, saving hundreds of lives from this deadly disease as he traveled from town to town on his mule. So his formula was simple, fresh air, clean water, and lemon juice mixed with water, which contains vitamin C. But what he was doing defied the medical practices of the time that actually discouraged cleanliness and advocated bleeding patients. However, his results were recognized and the province uh, parliament granted Nostradamus a lifetime pension in 1546. And as a result, he remained financially independent until the end of his life. So there's there's Sagittarius at the bottom of the list, Nostradamus. We're still talking about him. And (laughs) and who would have thought vitamin C might be a better idea than bleeding? (laughs) Than using leeches. (laughs) Good point. And I think that segues us right into a larger conversation about what we're all going through right now. And Trish, I think you wanted to share uh, a post off blog.synchrosecrets.com to kick that off. Uh, About one o'clock this morning, I started getting aggravated. So I thought, okay, what we're like, I, I, I ended up writing this blog post called Life is a Movie Script. And it's based on Blake Snyder's book, Save the Cat. You, he's, there are two of them. There's one for screenwriting and one for novel writing. So if we were right now with this coronavirus and everything else that's going on, so if life right now is a movie script, we would be in act two, what Blake Snyder and Save the Cat calls the upside down world. Okay, this world is where the heroes left the status quo world, which we definitely have, and which may have happened on January 21st, 2017, when Trump was inaugurated as the 45th president. And the hero tries to fix things, but in the wrong way. The hero is acting on his wants or, or her wants, not the needs. In Hunger Games, Act Two is where Katniss enters the capital. For us, it's where much of the country is in lockdown mode, 
consumerism has come to a glaring screeching halt and people are told to work from home or to go home and not come back until the country opens up again. For us, this upside down world is riddled with uncertainty. No unemployment, no sick leave, no paychecks, no hugs, inadequate health insurance or none at all. And we're in the midst of a presidential election. Okay, in this upside down world of Act Two, the current president is a pathological liar who initially called this pandemic a democratic hoax, then changed his tune, sort of, and tried to act like he knew what was going on. The hero, us, the American people, think we should wait until the election to get rid of this demented man. That's the wrong way to fix things. That's what Act Two is about. What lesson is the hero supposed to learn in Act Two? Well, according to Save the Cat, we should figure out how to fix things the right way based on our needs, not our wants. So how do we heroes, we the heroes, do that? We use our collective power, more than 330 million of us, to take back democracy before it dies altogether. According to Snyder, we have to go through some trials first, like, as of 1 a.m. March 22nd, the confirmed cases globally were 312,000. As of today, at, I think it was 1 p.m. when I checked, that figure has risen to 329,768. Uh, at 1 a.m. this morning, there were more than 12,000 cases in New York. There are now more than 15,000. Uh, there were more. There were 53,000 cases in Italy. There are now 59,000 cases in Italy, and on and on it goes. In Florida this morning at 1 a.m., there were 763 cases. As of 1 p.m., there are 830. So our governor, Ron DeSantis, didn't bother closing beaches because, well, you know, all those spring breakers mean money to the state. So local officials in Dave Broward and Palm Beach counties closed, closed the beaches. But on Florida's West Coast, beaches are open. Come on down, you silly college kids. DeSantis, to his credit, tries to act like a leader, but fails miserably. No state lockdown, and he pats Trump on the back at every opportunity. I think we're now at what Snyder calls the midpoint of the script, where the stakes are raised. It's the crossroad. But what raises those stakes? Several hundred thousand more infections, thousands of deaths, hospitals increasingly overwhelmed by lack of supplies and necessary equipment, a scarcity of nurses and doctors because they're in quarantine or dead, a complete breakdown of the economy. While the Senate argues over what the stimulus package should be for corporations, as it was in the 2008 bailout for banks on Wall Street, individuals are gasping on dust. So in Save the Cat, the hero, us, realizes what to do. We should invoke the 25th Amendment. In a, in a nutshell, it means the president is removed because he or she is unfit for office. Well, how does the hero do this? How do we do this? We, by, I think we start by rejecting the entire scenario as our story. We do this through sheer numbers, but how, how? Can we, do we believe we could do that? That collective belief may be our most powerful tool. Um, okay, now my question is, can we break into act three before everything collapses? Can the hero win and the evil guys be led away in orange jumpsuits? We're not there. Not yet. So there's also the question here that this pandemic raises the possibility that huge swaths of the executive branch and even Congress and the Supreme Court could be disabled, you know, forcing the implementation of uh, continuity of government plans that uh, include evacuating uh, Washington and devolving leadership to uh, second tier officials in remote and quarantined 
locations. You know, some people might say, yay, uh, get rid of uh, Washington uh, Congress, uh, <clears throat> one of the most unpopular uh, organizations uh, there is. And uh, but, you know, the coronavirus is uh, has us in a new territory where the military itself is vulnerable. And, uh, you know, there's disaster scenarios are being comp uh, contemplated right now, in, including the possibility of uh, widespread domestic violence as a result of food shortages. Uh, these are being considered by the military <clears throat> uh, and they're forcing planners to to look into what are called extraordinary circumstances. What, what I'm saying here is coming from. Uh, a recent article that was uh, published. Who, who it was did in the, Newsweek. In Newsweek. Was, yeah. Okay. Um, according to new documents and interviews with military experts, the various plans, codenamed Octagon, Freejack, and Zodiac, are underground laws. So, so here we are in the mystical underground talking about underground laws to ensure government continuity. They are so secret that under these extraordinary plans, devolution, could circumvent uh, the normal constitution uh, provisions for government succession and military commanders uh, could be placed uh, in control around America. But uh, fortunately, in our country, the military has a history of being non-political, and we would hope that would continue on if uh, if there was a temporary situation uh, where the, the military did have to take control. What do you say to that, John? Well, of course, first of all, we have to hope that, yes, the military is apolitical, as we would in any national emergency, not that there's been one quite or any certainly hasn't been one like this in uh, in my lifetime. Uh, but um, but also I just I don't I really don't believe we have a full picture. I don't think we have a complete uh, statistical analysis of this and and it and that makes it even more scary and 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 where 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 the blame goes for that I, you know I don't know uh, and I was wrestling with whether to share this or not but but you know hindsight being what it is it certainly has crossed my mind over the last few days that I lost a friend uh, back uh, about five months ago uh, who was, by all accounts, a perfectly healthy uh, 48-year-old female and uh, went into the hospital and died within about three days from pneumonia. Uh, now, you know, who knows, but that certainly sounds like someone that was whose respiratory system was under attack and you know that seems to be the the uh the vector for uh the lethal cases of this virus now i only bring that up uh to reemphasize uh the fact that i i don't think for a minute that we have a full uh, picture uh, of of what's going on, and so you know, continue to ask questions and do your own research and and dig and look for independent uh, sources of information that you uh, 
that you trust. And uh, because the the mainstream media and potentially the government, I, you know, they're 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 posturing this as, you know, that's our that's our favorite thing. That's our favorite thing in this country is it's a war on everything. So we're, we're it's a war on coronavirus. Well, this isn't an invading army. It's not like it just showed up on the West Coast two weeks ago, uh, potentially. And 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 certainly, it's it's there were cases of this. And in the case of my friend, I think it's not a statistic because the local med, uh, the local uh, uh, medical community didn't know how didn't know to diagnose it as this particular virus. Uh, so uh, I think just be vigilant. And uh, and to some extent, for now, we just have to follow the guidance we're given. But but don't don't just don't 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 accept it at face value. Uh, look for uh, continue to look for the truth and and and. Maybe it'll eventually come out. Maybe it won't. But, but uh, that's. I think that may be the best we can do right now. Well, I want to say one thing. The uh, CDC statistics, they they don't include them over the weekend because the CDC doesn't work on the weekend apparently. So where I've been getting my statistics is from a website that was created by a 17 year old kid in Seattle, and he started it in December, and it's called N C O R. 2019.live forward slash data. Now, I put this up on Facebook and two days later got an email from Facebook saying, oh, this violates our policies. Only you can see it. Now, why why would that be? Yeah, I mean... I mean, what, what policies does that do? <laughs> I, I don't get yeah, it. It's either public record or not, right? So. Yeah, well, maybe that's it now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can say that I follow a lot of YouTube streamers that over the last several weeks have been avoiding mentioning uh, coronavirus or COVID-19 simply because they were concerned about being demonetized on YouTube. So, you know, at, at the very least, uh, I think these commercial platforms like Facebook and YouTube are possibly concerned about uh, backlash from spreading, uh, quote-unquote, fake news or bad information, especially in the light of all the scrutiny that was focused on them from the last election and the perceived interference. I think it's important that... uh People don't panic, uh, you know, losing your job, staying home. And what I like to do is I like to think as if I'm uh, on a meditation retreat. And I think if uh, a lot of us would kind of think in those terms and, uh, you know, uh, here's a uh, look at it as an opportunity to uh, uh, change yourself, to go inward and uh, learn about yourself more and uh, and see see where things go. And um, just another note on the the military aspect of uh, the possibility that there are smaller or government taking form outside of 
uh, Washington or the possibility of that. I got a note, for, I was mentioning that to a friend online, and he said that his uh, sister-in-law saw uh, a rail uh, railroad cars full of uh, tanks heading south. And he, uh, really? Yeah. And they live in... Uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale. So on the heading south, I'm wondering if possibly Homestead Air Force Base mm. might be one of these centers that uh, uh, might crop up. The, but, you know, that's that's uh, more of a dire situation. That's preparation for uh, something uh, much worse. Hopefully we'll, you know, we'll, we'll stay cool, we'll meditate and get through this. Yeah, and I, I think that, I think something you said earlier, Rob, is absolutely something that everyone should take to heart is that this is an opportunity. And and I tell you, what what I think is pretty astounding is that in a really weird way, this being asked to socially distance ourselves is actually an opportunity to make contact with people that you really haven't been in contact with for a while. And I'll explain. One of my pet peeves over the last several years is that as a culture, as a society, and maybe even as a species, we've, we've been evolving into, uh, into the act of uh, social distancing in that we don't really have communications anymore. We just send signals. Um, social, the social networks, texting. Before that, in the workplace, email are all examples where it's not. It's really not a true communication. It 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 is. It is. Uh, you know. It, it's it's not it's not a, a duplex. It it. It is one-way communication, which is a, a signal. Um, absolutely, this is an opportunity to uh, reach out and actually pick up the phone and call somebody. Check in on them. See how they're doing. You're, you can't go anywhere on the weekend or potentially during the week, especially, at, you know, maybe at nights or whenever you're, if you're working from home, even then you're, you're, con- you're confined to the house. So, uh, the kids don't have activities, uh, all the excuses that we've had built into our day-to-day lives to con- that we use to convince ourselves that we don't have time to talk to anybody. Those are gone. Call somebody, maybe somebody that's, maybe somebody that's, isolated and truly isolated and going through this by themselves, they might just like to hear another human voice. Give them a call and talk to them. And, oh, by the way, you don't even have to pick up the phone. Sit down with your, uh, with your significant other and your children and have dinner around a table for a change and actually communicate with each other instead of texting them from the next room. That would be great. Uh, so that's a real opportunity. Right. <clears throat> I want to say one other thing, just a second. That there was a psychic who died in 2013 in one of her last books. Her name was Sylvia Brown. In one of her last books, she actually made a prediction that there would be a pandemic in 2020. 
and it would appear and then it would magically or strangely disappear and then it would reappear 10 years later. Yeah. So I want to end this on a positive note. I remember reading a number of times that like 65, 70, 75 percent of people hate their jobs. A lot of people have lost their jobs now. Here's a great opportunity or temporarily temporary lost their jobs. Here's a great opportunity to find out, think about what you really want to do in life. Mm-hmm. How, can you, how can you move ahead with your own plans, uh, your own career? And it's a, it's a great opportunity. And uh, maybe, you, maybe you don't even want to go back to that job that you didn't like. Maybe something else will pop up there. Some businesses are going to fold. New businesses are going to start. It's, it's a revolution of type. And, and there absolutely is, uh, and exactly that—that's where you have to take this. As, well, it's not not saying that we should just bury our heads in the sand and just mm-hmm. and just and be Pollyanna about it. But it is an opportunity. Take it as an opportunity to do things to further uh, take care of yourself, your family, your community, and 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 I tell you, that's what we're going to have to do going forward. Is you're going to invest in your community make sure the people you know face to those are the people you can have the most impact on and so you you have an opportunity to change your life or your loved ones lives or maybe even make some changes in your community on how we react to this kind of thing and and then we maybe we can bubble it up to the top but uh um and I'll edit this out because I, no, totally I, I was totally going somewhere. Well, no, I was totally going somewhere <laughs> else, but I lost the point because I got caught up in that. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, John. Don't don't sit back and wait for the federal government to provide all right. the answers for you. Start at home. Start with friends and work up from there. Local. Start local. And uh, maybe you'll get help uh, from uh, a higher you know, the federal government, the state government, maybe it won't. Uh, but, you know, let's uh, work, work together. Now we're going to move into the writer's corner. Trish is going to talk about Save the Cat. If you're wondering what cat and why does it need to be saved, hang on and you're going to find out. Here's Trish. Okay. Thank you for joining us. All right. Two books I think that are essential for every writer are called Save the Cat, the last book on screenwriting you'll ever need, and its companion, Save the Cat Writes a Novel. The first one is by screenwriter Blake Snyder, and the second is by Jessica Brody, who used Snyder's techniques and applied them to novel writing. Snyder, unfortunately, passed away in 2009, which is why Brody took over the writing of that particular book. The Save the Cat title refers to the scene in Alien, where Ripley literally saves the cat, and that's why we love the character. What makes Snyder's techniques unique is that he pretty much takes Joseph Campbell's hero's journey and breaks it down into 15 essential beats that anyone can understand. Then he breaks down each beat and shows us how it works in movies, and Brody breaks down each beat and illustrates how they work in novels. Both books also cover how to create a hero everyone loves for um, information on genres, ideas, bad guys, theme, the bigger picture. The length of scenes is also something that both books tackle. 
The formats of a screenplay and a novel are different, but the beats are the same. For Blake, a screenplay is 110 pages. A typical novel varies, but let's say it's 400 to 450 pages. And what both books do is give you a percentage of the story where these different beats appear. Okay, so here are the beats. The opening scene, <clears throat> an image, this, this is an image that gives us a before snapshot of the hero and the hero's world. It's 1% in into the story. Uh, here's an example. In The Hunger Games, in the first two pages of the book, Katniss wakes up in her home in District 12 on the day of the reaping and sneaks off to hunt so her family can eat. That's a powerful opening image. We immediately know that this is not an iced world when people don't have enough to eat. Okay, 5% in, you're, by 5% by into the story, your theme should be stated. This is the hero's need or life lesson. Um, in the Sandra Bullock movie, Miss Congeniality, the theme is stated when Bullock declares she doesn't need to worry about being feminine because she's an FBI agent. All right, the third beat, the setup. This actually happens between one and 10% of the story. This sets up your hero's life. This is where you show um, you know, who their family is, their friends, their partners. Uh, and this is the status quo world before everything changes. Now here, you have to really show what the hero wants. It's where we find out about what, what needs to be changed really in the hero's life. All right, 10% in or earlier, we run into the catalyst beat. This is the event or situation that disrupts the status quo world. And once the catalyst happens in a story, it's, a, it's the point where you can't go back, the hero can't go back to what used to be normal in their world. Okay, in the Da Vinci Code, a dead body is found in the museum. It's a catalyst for change. Bad stuff happens to the hero. This is the classic call to adventure. In Miss Congeniality, this happens when uh, there's a murder threat to the American Miss pageant and the FBI decides to send in one of their female agents, Bullock, who now, remember, Bullock says she doesn't have to worry about being feminine. Okay, The debate is 10 to 20% into the story. This shows how resistant your hero is to change. Um, and, and it really prepares your hero for the break into act two into this non-status quo world. In Miss Congeniality, the preparation for this debate, for this break into act two, is if Mike, how, how Michael Caine is going to turn Bullock into a sexy contestant, <clears throat> or can he do it at all? All right. Break into act two. Now, this is the opposite of act one. It's, you're 20% into your story. Um, it definitely has to happen when you're at least a quarter of the way in. In Miss Congeniality, this happens when Bullock walks out of the warehouse where they've been working on her, and she's a hot babe, and then she stumbles. So Kane kind of rolls his eyes, and he realizes, uh-oh, we still got a lot of work to do. <clears throat> in Hunger Games, it happens when Katniss enters the Capitol. This is the upside down world that act two has to represent. So in Hunger Games, Katniss has gone from a girl who's hunting for food for her family into this contestant who enters the capital for the Hunger Games. Okay, the seventh beat is called the B story. This is the, the section where your hero learns a lesson and it's 22% of the way into the story. Uh, and it represents the upside down world. 
which is at what Act Two is about. In Hunger Games, this is Peter Mellark, who was one of the tributes who trains all his life to fight in the Hunger Games. And even though he's lived in District 12 and he and Katniss have had a few brief encounters in the past, he becomes a major player when she shipped off to the Capitol. Okay, the eighth beat. The fun and games, this happens 20, 20 to 50% of your story. And it's the promise of the, of the premise. In both the book and the movie of The Martian, this is when Mark, the stranded astronaut, has to learn to survive on a barren planet. In Hunger Games, this is when Katniss fights in the arena. Now we come to the midpoint. That's basically 50% of the way into your story. Um, there's usually a ticking clock in this uh, eighth beat, the midpoint. The hero either experiences a false defeat or a false victory. The A and B stories intersect in some way. Now, the midpoint in The Martian looks like Mark's going to be able to survive because he's harvesting his potato crops and he's communicated with Earth. He still hasn't gotten off Mars and he hasn't conquered his fear of exactly how he's going to survive here for X number of months or years. Um, then the, 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 the ticking clock here, though, in the midpoint for The Martian is when the airlock on the hab breaks and all his crops are destroyed. So now it's not about what Mark wants, which was to get home. Now it's about what he needs to survive. Okay, in Hunger Games, the midpoint happens when PETA saves Katniss's life, just as other tributes in the game are about to kill her. So that totally changes the dynamics between the two of them. All right, the 10th beat. This happens between 50 and 75% of the story. That's the span. The bad guys close in. Okay, in The Martian, since Mark is the only person on Mars, the bad guys are situations. Mark suffers injuries when the lock on the hab breaks. The supply probe NASA tries to send explodes. He loses all communication with Earth. So the stakes are really raised here. Okay, the 11th beat, this is all is lost. It happens 75% of the way into the story. Your heroes hit rock bottom. Now, in most stories, well, maybe not most, but in a lot of stories, especially in movies, at 75 minutes into the movie, there's usually a death or what Snyder calls a whiff of death. Uh, in The Hunger Games, Rue, with whom Katniss is now an ally, is killed. Uh, this forces Katniss to figure things out on her own. She has to figure out what does she need. Well, she needs a way to win the games. Okay, the 12th beat... This is the dark night of the soul, and it's between 75% and 80% of the story. This is when Katniss buries Rue in flowers. There's something, there's some sort of epiphany that usually happens in the dark night of the soul. For Mark and the Martian, after he loses contact with NASA, he has to figure out how he'll get to uh, Ares Foresight to rendezvous, rendezvous with, his, with his crew. Okay, usually the break into Act 3, the 13th beat, happens 80% in. Now, this is the breakthrough. This is where the hero fixes out, figures out how to fix things the right way. Uh, basically, most heroes figure out it was never the others who had to change. It was the hero himself who had to change. Then the 14th beat, the finale, 80 to 90% in, the hero is doing what he has to, what he has to, what has to be done. But there's a five-point plan. Now, this is where the only part where Snyder's book, for me, gets a little dicey. First, this, they call it the, the five-point diamond plan or something. Um, okay, gathering the team. You're making preparations 
for whatever is going to be your finale, then you're executing your plan. Now, this is where in the Hunger Games, where Katniss and Peeta defeat the rest of the tributes until they're the only two left in the games. And often at this point, there's a B story sacrifice so that the hero really shines. Then the third part of this five point plan, <laughs> storming the castle. The plan is, was never going to work. That's where you find out, where the hero finds out whatever they had planned was never going to work. After Katniss and Peter survived the games, the game makers announced another rule change. Only one contestant can win. So this is where the hero really has to overcome their internal flaw. In Hunger Games, Katniss prepares to eat the poisonous berries, defying the capital and proving once and for all that she's not their pawn. The hero takes a leap of faith. In Hunger Games, it's the point where Katniss and Peter start to eat the berries, but the game makers stop them. They both won. So your final image is going to be the opposite of your opening image. And I can't remember exactly what that final image was in Hunger Games, but I remember that it was definitely the complete opposite of her uh, hunting for her family. And that's it for today's Writer's Corner. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining the Mystical Underground. Listen to the podcast at www.themysticalunderground.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Visit the blog, blog.synchrosecrets.com, or visit the book site, phenomena111.com. Send us email, podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical.